This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, as part of our Town Hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we present an evening of conversation with four candidates running for statewide office. Chris Rakedahl is Superintendent of Public Instruction, and he is running for re-election. Representative Gail Tarleton is running for Secretary of State. Also, Lieutenant Governor candidate Senator Marco Leas joins us, as well as Representative Mike Pellicciotti, who is running for State Treasurer. All four candidates represent a tremendous opportunity for us to advance real progressive ideals and policy here in the state. And the following hour is an opportunity for you to get to know them and to get excited about their campaigns. This conversation was recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, September 1st. So tonight, we are going to be speaking with a slate of Democratic candidates for state executive offices here in Washington. First, we have Superintendent of Public Instruction Chris Rakedahl, then Secretary of State candidate Gail Tarleton, followed by Lieutenant Governor candidate Marco Leas, and finally, State Treasurer candidate Mike Pellicciotti. I'm just going to speak from the heart. These are extraordinary candidates. We have had the great good fortune to spend time with each of them here on the town hall series before the primary. So I know just how much they bring to the table, uh, which is to say decades of experience, expertise, and a real deep commitment to our state. We would be fortunate to have all of them in office. I am absolutely sure that after you've heard from these candidates tonight, you are going to be as excited as I am to hashtag do the work. So with that, let us meet our first candidate. Chris Rakedahl has served as Washington's Superintendent of Public Instruction since 2017. Previously, he was representative for the 22nd Legislative District, and he is currently running for re-election. And he is our first guest tonight. Superintendent Rakedahl, it's good to see you again. How are you, sir? I am great. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Excellent. Excellent. We're, we're, we're excited to have you. So just as a quick refresher for everybody, just remind us of what the superintendent of public instruction does. Yes, this is a constitutional office. Um, way back in the start of the state, this was a partisan office. Uh, but many decades ago, the voters said, you know, let's make this nonpartisan, which is one of our challenges. We'll talk about it a little bit later. Uh, I've got an extremely right-wing Trump Republican who's opposing me, and I'm a three-term former Democratic House member. So We clearly have our values politically, but it's hard for voters to see that. Superintendent has all manner of supervision of public education. So the money goes out to districts to the office, all the accountability, all the learning standards. um, And then we do all the technical assistance for districts as they're figuring out how to navigate systems, uh, bring in new curriculums, as they need expertise, we've got it, whether it's finance, math expertise, English language arts. um, And then we have a whole food nutrition program, so a huge... Uh, win this week and getting meals to all of our families. Uh, we've got a lot more work to do because the Trump administration is going to shut that down after December, but we're fired up about that. Well, it's an extraordinarily holistic position, as you are alluding to here, uh, very values-driven, which, as you mentioned, we will certainly get into in depth. Uh, this is your first term in office, um, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, just give people an idea of your years of previous experience in education and, and specifically why you feel experience matters in this race. You know, I always start with my life experience. Youngest of eight and my oldest six siblings spent two years in the foster care system. Uh, My parents were alcoholics and had to kind of rebuild their family after recovery. And so I grew up in a nice sober household after a lot of trauma in the beginning, but uh, it really compelled me to want to go teach. I went to school every day as a kid on food stamps and needing public assistance, but I loved learning. And I said, I'm going to figure out a way to teach and be in public education because if I'm this excited and I can sort of get out of this poverty life, 
I want that opportunity for other people. So I went on to be a teacher, first in my family to go to college, a school board member. I worked 14 years for a community and technical college system, uh, six years in the legislature at that same time, and then this role right here. So I've touched education from higher ed to K-12 on the governance side of it to the teaching side of it. Um, my whole life has been dedicated to the work. I love the work. Um, it's no easier today than it was when I was a kid uh, for, for a lot of folks, but it's, uh, it's a great system. Maybe compare and contrast a little bit your experience with that of your opponent. Yeah, it's really night and day. Um, our opponent has never worked in public education, has never had a teaching certificate. She claims to be a teacher because she's offered music lessons at a private elementary Catholic school. I've never been on a school board, never worked in public finance, just really no background in public education. Um, and so we have these huge differences of experiences that we attempt to bring to this. Uh, mine is a background with a, obviously in public ed, but a lot of values about progressive interests, a lot of want to dismantle systems of racism, breaking down systems that don't work. And she brings an economic ideology. She wants to privatize. She's been very, very clear. Charters for sure, but definitely vouchers, even for religious institutions. Uh, they've been a disaster all over the South. They segregate, and we'll talk more about that probably. But uh, she brings sort of this really hardcore conservative economic ideology of privatizing the system and free market. And it is the most powerful way to segregate schools and communities. And uh, so, yeah, we are very different people. Indeed you are. And as you say, yeah, there, there are certainly a number of ways in which you diverge that I, I want to get into a little more deeply. But first, I want to give you the opportunity to talk about some of your achievements during your first term in office. It's been very busy. Uh, generally speaking, you've overhauled, you've taken on a lot, you've overhauled a number of systems. Uh, can you just run down a few of your key achievements for us? Yeah, you know, when I ran for this office, there were some things I wanted to do, knowing, of course, that ironically, you don't have your own singular executive power like the governor, nor your own legislative power. It has to be partnerships and relationships. But here we are three and a half years later. We've added $4 billion to public ed. We're the fastest growing economic system uh, in the country in terms of uh, how we invest in our young people. Our teachers have seen the highest increase in compensation in the last four years. We've gotten health insurance to tens of thousands of classified school employees. Um, our graduation rates have set a record high, and we're graduating students of color at a faster rate than the overall average. So we've got a long ways to go, but we're closing those gaps. A um, couple of really cool things that are not on people's radar, but it's awesome. We've, we've now brought dual language, bilingual learning, elementary schools in 40 districts around the state. Um, until we are committed to dual language and really honoring uh, heritage language, as well as uh, languages learned, you can't be globally competitive. You cannot suggest for a second that we understand the world and we respect uh, the world until our students can say, I can compete anywhere in the world. And we just haven't done that. Thing called transition kindergarten. Why wait till kindergarten when students uh, are already behind to find out they're in deficit and then we're remediating? We've actually got a program that allows them to get a six month jumpstart, an 18 month experience. So those families get intensive supports, then they're at standard and then they have a lot more success. Also created CTE pathways, career and tech ed by delinking high stakes standardized tests. We've done virtually everything we wanted to do in the first four years, or at least gotten a significant start. Uh, but with COVID, there's so much we have to now rebound. There's so much we have to rethink about. Um, and we will lose the progress on equity if we are not intensive about, a, about public ed, about really embracing its possibilities. This privatization concept, using COVID as an excuse to tear the system down, 
would be a disaster. So there's a lot of work left ahead of us. Well, you're kind of anticipating my next question. And I I will just stress for people that we are having 15 minutes with each of the four candidates tonight. And so I'm trying to get to the most pressing questions. And we did get a lot of questions about COVID. Uh, we are about to be in school again. According to the Seattle Times, about 94% of public school students in Washington are going to be learning remotely this fall. So you know, as, as well as anybody, that this is a very difficult time for parents, students, teachers. Talk about why it's important to keep you on the job during this challenging time. You were alluding to it already, but I'd love for you to go a little bit deeper if you could. Yeah, so a couple of things. I mean, obviously, this is a once in a hundred year pandemic. We hope, right? Let's hope we don't do this again anytime soon. And right now, more than ever, you have to have relationships with the governor's office, with the majorities of our legislature, uh, be willing to be in every community and see students as the priority. Again, not some philosophy or ideology, but really see the unique needs of students. Now, this is a tough time because we do have a million students learning remotely to start the year. Department of Health and the governor really set that framework. Again, that's not something OSPI can decide. I can't go in and say, we are definitely going to school. We're going to close them down. Uh, those are other authorities. So our job was to respond. Get 100,000 devices in the hands of kids who didn't have it. Get 100,000 connections to broadband for families who don't have it. And if they don't, then make the schools get those kids in for in-person learning so that every student gets access to their basic ed. We had to bust our tails in the last three weeks to get the U.S. Department of Agriculture to ensure we could feed every family who needed food. And so our office facilitates this massive effort on equity to get kids access to food, quality learning, whether it's remote or in-person, all those wraparound supports. And of course, we're doing that in partnership with local districts who all have local school boards making their own sort of independent decisions on how they'll deploy we just create the conditions so that they can do it as safely and effectively as possible. So this is an enormously weighty question that I'm going to drop on you and uh, with the limited time we have, but it, it is something that we alluded to earlier. And so I would like to get to it. Let's talk about values, educational values. What do you consider to be the key values that should inform our public schools? Well, first and foremost, equity. The concept of public education was um, not in our origin, right? We, we started as a country of, of elites, of racist background. If you were a person of color, if you were a woman or you were a non-property owner, uh, even white male, you didn't participate in the democracy. So this is a country that's actually chosen a system of universal access at the age of five and ultimately a commitment through the age of 18. It is the most democratizing tool or institution we have in the country. We dedicate 53% of our state general fund to it. That's how important it is every student the opportunity to not just learn next to somebody who might be very different from them, but to learn from each other in classrooms. So that's one of those values that I cherish. When folks say, no, give them all their little piece of the pie and let them run to their own faith community, their own church to get their education or, or stay in their own or part of their neighborhood, you go back to the origins of vouchers, uh, started in the Jim Crow era, and it was a move by, by white folks to try to create elite segregation for themselves. We've broken that down for 60 years. We have these community schools that we support, and it's just so important that we stay focused on that. We've got work to do. It's not a perfect system. It's got flaws. Um, it is not just in many cases, but it is our best opportunity at democratizing, giving people opportunity, and its purpose is to lift up individuals. Um, and obviously, when you do that, you build an amazing workforce, too. You give them opportunities to be uh, entrepreneurs or to work for somebody, uh, and you certainly underwrite the economy with great education. But it's not going to be what it needs to be until it's focused on equity and we still have work to do in that.
an equity community lifting up individuals. This, and when we spoke, uh, this this very much, in your opinion, runs counter to what your opponent brings to the table. Uh, you believe she wants to see what she what you refer to as a two tiered system. Can you explain that? Yeah, ultimately, when you voucher a system, when you privatize it, when you say, you know, it's not about community creating assets and supports for families. Instead, it's like, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of money and everyone gets their piece of it and then they run off and purchase it wherever they want. When you do that, you create a two-tiered system. What happens, we saw in Louisiana, we've seen in Georgia, we've seen in Alabama and other places, is families with resources grab their voucher. They say, well, we're doing this in part uh, for some pretty sinister reasons. They go to places that then add a tuition because those families can afford it. And suddenly your best schools, the heaviest investments, the ones with the most resources are only full of people who grab their voucher, which is equal, right? It's not an equity approach. They all got the same in Louisiana after Katrina, but a tuition piece was put on it. And only certain families with wealth and privilege could go to those schools. Everyone else is left in the system that is remaining, which no longer has that shared interest. Usually your levies just get destroyed because people don't want to vote for something when their kid's now going to the elite school. Um, transportation usually goes away and people say, now that you have a voucher, you're going to get yourself to school. Um, it is the most segregation-based approach possible. And you create really two, two, two Americas, two economies, two different communities. And um, I cannot think of a more damaging thing. And I'm disgusted, if I can use that word, that we are in a moment of crisis where we really have to come together. And people across this country, including my opponent, is saying now's the time to create that system. While everyone's under duress and they're frustrated and they want to be in school, let's now crack that door open. Because once they think they can do it, folks won't want to ever come back to that system. Before we let you go, I want to give you the opportunity to address something. Uh, this is something that your opponent published in a voter pamphlet. It contained what your attorney referred to as a, quote, defamatory statement about you in it. What can you tell us about this? Yeah, so my opponent published a flat-out lie, and the courts caught her, but unfortunately, it's going to stay. So believe it or not, she's got a statement in the Voter's Guide that says uh, the incumbent championed a policy to teach sexual positions to fourth graders because she opposes the new comprehensive sexual health education law passed by the legislature. The lower court said you have two tiers you have to meet, prove that it's wrong, which we did, and prove that it's defamatory, that it harms you and it was malicious. The lower court agreed with us. It came out of the Voter's Guide. She appealed it to the state Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court did not disagree with the lower court on it being untruthful, but said, you're an elected official, the bar is high, and we don't know whether it's damaging to you until there's an election. <laughs> That's the irony of this. And so they put the statement back in. Uh, the courts understand it to be false and, and untrue, and here every single voter in their pamphlet is gonna have this thing. And it's because they're opposed to a bill, I mean, get this, that teaches kids from kindergarten through 12th grade how to create a safer environment for themselves, how to protect themselves from sexual assaults, how to reduce sexually transmitted infections, uh, how to reduce um, the risk to themselves uh, of pregnancy when it's unwanted. And it's stunning. 29 other states do this. Parents have the right to opt out. These are locally adopted curriculums. This isn't actually very revolutionary at all, but boy, this is the centerpiece for the state Republican Party because normally on a presidential year, Tim Iman would have put a tax issue on the ballot to get their base. He was running for governor, so they made this the centerpiece issue. Um, it is just so grounded um, in evangelical uh, basis, which I respect them personally. That's why there's an opt-out right. But to tell communities that you are not allowed to teach this stuff uh, because some folks are offended by it is to deny equity 
uh, for families who really need it. And boy, are there folks who need a science-based, medically accurate system sexual health education. Well, there are going to be people who are calling on your behalf, making phone calls, phone banking, and I think you've just given a, a great rundown of talking points uh, to refute what is on that that ballot. Um, before we let you go, give us an idea of what sort of help you need with this point in your campaign so that we can help you get over the finish line in November. Well, I really appreciate that. You're going to hear from three other amazing candidates, and they get to put a big capital D next to their name because they're clearly Democrats, and everyone gets to see that in the in the voter's guide. When you get down to this statewide race, it's the only one where both candidates have to file as nonpartisan. And so people look at this and they go, wow, they both look good on paper. How do I figure this out? What we really need um, is folks in the indivisible community to be talking about the race, saying there is a clear progressive in this race. And there is a Betsy DeVos clone in this race. I mean, really, her policies are straight from the DeVos background. Um, and we really got to have folks talking about it. They got to be on social media about it. And they've got to be talking to their friends. And I know it's old school, but when you jump on email or social media and you tell 20 or 30 people, hey, this is the can I'm supporting and here's why, that's more information than they're ever going to get in a race this far down the ballot. And as you said earlier, everyone's got to get down the ballot. Usually there's a 20% drop off in this race from governor to OSPI. Um, it was a little less than that in the primary, which means her base uh, was very motivated. We got to get our base to come all the way down that ballot. So appreciate it. I'll throw in the chat again the address to the website where people can volunteer, can endorse, can donate, can get more information. And because this is going out to a radio audience as well, can you give us that uh, in verbal form? I can. <laughs> ChrisRakedall1Word.org. The problem is that last name, R E Y K D A L, a proud name from. Uh, Iceland, where my father's site is from, chrisrakedahl.org, one word, Chris Rakedahl. That is tremendous. Superintendent Rakedahl, it's such a pleasure. Best of luck. We will, uh, we will be by your side. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Gail Tarleton is state representative for the 36th Legislative District. Previously, she served as Seattle Port Commissioner and served as Research Advisor and Development Director for the University of Washington's College of Arts and Sciences. She began her career as a defense analyst with the Defense Intelligence Agency in D.C., and she is with us tonight, and we couldn't be happier. Representative Tarleton, it is great to see you again. Stefan, wonderful to see you and all of your team. Uh, thanks so much for having us. Well, we couldn't be more excited. And uh, let's just jump right in. Remind people as a primer of what the job description of Secretary of State is. Yes. So I'm running for Secretary of State. Uh, the Secretary of State is known as the Chief Elections Officer. It oversees the elections that are actually conducted on the ground by 39 uh, auditors and local offic elections officials in our 39 counties. Uh, the Secretary of State also has the responsibility of registering all of the businesses and nonprofits and charitable organizations in the state. And the third and less known but really important part of that office is to help our people know the history of our state, the tribal uh, traditions and tribal nations who have been here for millennia, uh, to know our about our territory as a territory and then as a state. And uh, it oversees the state archives and the state museums. And so it's a it's got rich tradition and very real responsibilities to protect our democracy. 
Well, it's a tremendous position, and we are very lucky to have you running for it. And certainly one of the things that's top of mind right now are the Secretary of State's responsibilities vis-a-vis the elections. So let's talk about the Trump administration and the GOP's attempts to undermine the U.S. Postal Service. So we know that they blocked $25 billion in funding that the USPS needs to survive. Uh, Trump appointee Postmaster General Louis DeJoy has removed thousands of sorting machines and mailboxes. I'd like your assessment of the damage that has been done here in Washington in terms of removing and sorting machines and mailboxes. Can you give us give us some sort of idea? Stefan, first, may I just say how outrageous it is that we are all dealing with the attack on the U.S. Postal Service that is coming from our president, that is coming from the Attorney General of the United States. And there is not a single leader in the Republican Party at the national level or in our state here that is condemning the attacks on the Postal Service. It is simply indescribably outrageous. It is despicable. And I think that what we all need to really take on as a responsibility is that it's our post office. It's our postal service. These are our postal workers who are our lifeline to our families and our friends and our colleagues who are all over this country and all over the world to our troops to the families of our troops who are serving all over the world and in different communities around this country who are relying on the post office that serves their local community to not only bring them their ballot, but to bring them their care packages and their birthday cards and their flowers when when something is being celebrated or people are being mourned because they have lost friends and family. This is This is deep to the heart of who we are, and it's in the Constitution for a reason that we have a post office. And so the damage being done, indescribable and unknown, because the Postmaster General just testified last week that he refuses to restore the mail sorting machines, the blue collection boxes, and return to opening the mail processing centers that have been closed. And all of this was stated unequivocally in the federal court right here in Eastern Washington. And we don't even know how many machines have been removed, where they were removed from, what counties are most affected. We don't know how many blue collection boxes have been removed. So the damage estimate in in military terms is we don't have a known damage estimate. We have no understanding of the collateral damage that has been done. Which is, uh, that's a frightening thing to hear. And in response, I I know that you've called on Governor Inslee to call on the current Secretary of State to direct election funds to expand ballot box locations throughout the state, among other measures. Uh, What's been her, her response to that? Her response was to tell the auditors to come up with the cash to pay for a 51 cent stamp to put on the ballots. There has been no response to a letter that my colleagues and I sent to her in our official capacity to ask her to please join the attorney general's lawsuit to on the Trump administration and with the against the postmaster general to give us that information. Last week, that lawsuit was filed in the federal court in uh, Eastern Washington, and the judge held the initial hearing, and he said to the Trump administration and to the postmaster general's lawyer. I need the post office to provide ASAP 
mail sorting machines removed. Where were they removed from? Blue collection boxes removed. Where were they removed from? How many? The mail processing centers closed. The changes in the schedules of the postal workers. I need all of that right now. Time is of the essence. And the response of the Trump administration, lawyers, we're not going to be able to do that. It's simply impossible. These were just policies. And our Secretary of State is demanding nothing. And that about says it all. She wasn't asking for where were the mail sorting machines removed. She wasn't asking for where the blue collection boxes are removed, which counties are going to be most affected, which populations and voting centers are possibly going to be receiving their ballots much later than they anticipate. Not because they don't have the right stamp on them or paid the right amount of postage, but because they have no way of knowing what part of the Postal Service is going to be able to get the work done. Well, I think you're laying out in very stark terms why we need a replacement in this position at the state level. I'd like to shift over because, unfortunately, we have a very limited amount of time here. I want to talk about voting rights very generally and get your your, your thoughts on a few things. So in the 2018 session, after the Democrats took the majority, uh, you supported a number of pieces of legislation to increase voter access here in the state and increase turnout. Can you just run down a few of those pieces of legislation for us? We're really proud. Uh, The legislature passed the automatic voter registration, same-day voter registration, uh, the Washington Voting Rights Act in 2018, pre-registration of 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds, making sure we had free postage, and expanded ballot boxes. We funded in the uh, budget expanded ballot boxes to go all over the state and make sure the counties had ballot boxes. Uh, It was a it was a landmark year, 2018, after five years of trying. We got them all through in one year. And, uh, and that was an important time for this state. Voting rights and voter access were our number one responsibility to make sure voter participation was as broad as possible. And we got a lot done in one legislative session. You're, of course, making an extended argument about why we need more Democrats uh, in both chambers, as well as a strong Democrat uh, all statewide up and down. Uh, I would like to also talk about some threats to our election security, uh, because you bring something unique to the job, which is your national security background. And I, I'm wondering, how, can you, how do you assess the current threats to the security of our elections, both foreign and domestic right now? In 2016, uh, Stefan, the Russians interfered in our elections. The Senate Intelligence Committee has issued bipartisan reports throughout this summer uh, verifying that indeed the Russians did interfere on behalf of the Trump campaign to ensure that they were influencing the outcome of our elections, our democracy. Just two weeks ago, the Senate Intelligence Committee produced its final report which stipulated not only did the Russians interfere in the 2016 elections, President Putin ordered the direct attack, the cyber attack on the DNC emails. That had been the first time in that report that that was stated in public. We had an attack by a foreign head of state, ordered by a foreign head of state on our democracy, on our right to vote. And in response, the Trump administration has invited him in again in, 20, in 2020. The Trump administration is launching a domestic attack on our elections, 
This is why I'm running for this job, Stefan, because we have domestic and foreign, not only interference, direct attacks on our elections and our right to vote. Our voting rights are at risk. And when our voting rights are at risk, every right we have is at risk. My background in national security and in technology and in understanding how we ensure our voting rights are exercised despite attacks, despite disruptions, how we manage through these kinds of disruptions and be stronger coming out of it. That's what I want to bring to this job, because this is not the job that this incumbent ran for eight years ago. She's been in the job for eight years and she has done nothing to address these kinds of risks. And we need to address the risks of today and the future. And so I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, run this race. Make sure we are talking about what we need to do to protect our right to vote. Well, and on that note, uh, what are some of the sorts of things that we can do to help you out as we get into the, the final phases of this election? You know, Stefan, what I'm hearing from uh, people across the state is that they have no idea of the record of this Republican Secretary of State. They have no idea that she opposed same-day voting registration. They have no idea that she opposed pre-registration of 16-year-olds. They have no idea that she opposed free postage. They have no idea that she was the chair of the National Republican Secretaries of State Leadership Council, advancing the secretaries of state that were responsible for the vast majority of voter suppression and voter roll purging going on in many states around this country. We need the people to know the record of this Republican incumbent Secretary of State. She has chosen to be a Republican. She has put a Republican label by her name in every race she has ever run. And people need to know she is a Republican and she has held partisan Republican positions and she has opposed voting rights, voter participation and voter access. And we need to change the leadership in this office. Well, we're going to have people phone banking on your behalf, and I know that you've just given a list of very powerful talking points uh, as to why you need to be in the job as opposed to uh, the person who is currently occupying it. Before I let you go, can you give us your website? Yes. Uh, vote for Gale, V-O-T-E-F-O-R-G-A-E-L dot org. Representative Charlton, it is always such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time tonight. Thank you very much, Stefan. Have a great evening. Senator Marco Leas joins us now. He has served as state senator from the 21st Legislative District since 2014. He currently serves as the majority floor leader, and he's running for lieutenant governor. Senator Marco Leas, thank you so much for joining us again. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you once again. So for those people who may need a refresher, just give us a quick rundown on what the job of lieutenant governor is. Well, there's two main responsibilities. First is serving as our Senate president. Uh, and I'm proud to be the only senator in the race and I've served as our majority floor leader. So I feel like I bring some good experiences there. Uh, the second set of responsibilities really re relates to being number two in the executive branch. And I'll be honest, I think this office in the hands of the right person is exactly uh, the place where we can see the kind of bold transformational change we need in our state. When you look at my 12 years in the legislature, I've been making change. I'm excited to bring that 
uh, energy, that record uh, to this task as well. Well, you know, you talk about bringing bold change. You are the sole strong progressive uh, in this race. After the August primary, you are now in a two-way race with a fellow Democrat. So just give us an idea. What are some of the differences uh, in the way that the two of you are running your campaigns? Well, that's a great question. It's, it's tough to be in a top two with a Democrat because it's much easier to run against Republicans when uh, the disagreements are so clear. Uh, when it's another Democrat, it's a little tougher. Uh, our approach, though, has been to really run a people-powered campaign. And we saw this play out in the primary. Uh, we got outspent almost five to one. My opponent has a lot of friends on Wall Street, a lot of uh, deep-pocketed D.C. lobbyists who helped fund his campaign. But we are neck and neck with him uh, when voters had their say because of our strong grassroots energy. And it's thanks to indivisible uh, friends throughout the state, as well as the grassroots organizing we did. In the primary, we talked on the phone with over 10,000 voters, and we texted over 125,000 young voters to make sure that they got to the polls. We're going to keep that energy going. This is a people-powered movement. I'm excited to keep it going. I want to get your take on something because this is something that's popped up as a bit of a concern uh, for those of us on the Democratic side of things. Uh, Because the race is between two Democrats, some people were worried that uh, there could be a coordinated writing campaign for a GOP candidate splitting the vote. Are you concerned about that? Well, you know, before the write-in candidate jumped in, I had one millionaire opponent. Now I've got two millionaire opponents. So it is, uh, we do have that consistent challenge of an election system that's broken and uh, money determining the outcomes. Uh, What I can say, though, is when we looked across history and looked at examples around the state, we can't find any example of a write-in candidate winning a partisan race like this. And in the one example in Alaska where we saw it happen, uh, the Republicans had to spend $30 a vote to win. So uh, I think uh, I'm not worried. Uh, I'm, I know that our grassroots campaign is going to get us there, but it does require people organizing. It does mean folks are going to have to help us take some phone bank shifts. It does mean that we're going to have to uh, chip in 5 and 10 and $50 to help us get across the line. Uh, we're going to do it. Uh, this is just, you know, one more bump in the road, one more millionaire in the way. Uh, we're going to keep fighting on. Well, that, my friend, is why we are here tonight uh, to make that case. So let's talk about some of your key issues. I know your number one issue is health care. You were a co-sponsor of Senate Bill 5526 that established basically Cascade Care, what we now know as Cascade Care. Uh, Governor Inslee signed it a year ago. How do you see next steps for getting universal coverage for all Washingtonians? Yeah, we really did two things at once. First, we passed Cascade Care to have a public option, but alongside that, we impaneled a group of folks to help us chart the blueprint to universal health care. And they're going to deliver their report to us by the end of the year. And so I've always felt like these two run in parallel, that we need to be expanding access all the time while we transition to a universal system, a single payer system. And so Cascade Care is that middle step that gets access to more folks. It's exciting to see those plans show up on the exchange this fall to reduce costs. I'm hoping that we can talk about how to do premium supports to bring the cost of those plans even further down for folks. But the real vision is universal single payer. This is just an interim step to make sure we aren't leaving people hot behind while we transition to that vision. Now, your opponent, Democratic opponent, says he also supports universal health care. So what's the difference between your two positions? Well, I've, I'm the only candidate in the race that explicitly supports a universal single payer system. I support the whole Washington initiative here at the state level. 
and I've publicly supported Medicare for all at the federal level. We need a universal single-payer system where every single Washingtonian and candidly every single American uh, has access to health care. Uh, I don't want to out my parents, but they are both turning 65 this year, and signing them up for Medicare uh, is such a game changer. And I've just witnessed in my own family how wonderful that benefit is when people have access to it, how much reassurance it brings to people to know that their, their coverage is going to be there no matter what. That's what every single American, every single Washingtonian uh, deserves. My opponent refuses, and has had multiple opportunities to take a position on this, refuses uh, to endorse uh, universal single payer. I think that is a, a big distinction, and it's one that voters need to know about. We are going to deliver bold, transformational change, not incremental change that leaves Americans and Washingtonians behind. I will just take off my objective hat uh, for a moment and just say yes, yes to everything you just said, uh, Medicare especially. Um, I want to ask you about uh, the pandemic right now and particularly the way that it may be impacting the way that we are viewing the issue of health care. According to recent figures, and these are a little out of date, but they still hold up. The Office of Financial Management uh, says that some 700,000 Washingtonians have been thrown off their health care coverage due to the pandemic. And this is mostly because their health care was tied to their employment. I'm wondering if you think the pandemic might be a game changer in this way, in terms of the way that we start to think about universal health care. It absolutely is. It really demonstrates how broken this model is. The idea that your health care is dependent on where you work, and then we see a global pandemic that none of us predicted, none of us could have prepared for, and it's, it's cutting people off not just from their source of income, but from their source of care. It's cruel. It's inhumane. I also want to just highlight a couple other issues. I had a video discussion with Georgia Davenport, who's running out in the 7th LD, and with uh, Dr. Tracy Rushing, who's running an ER doc that's running in the 15th LD down in the Columbia River Gorge. And they pointed out that the pandemic has also really highlighted the urban-rural divide in healthcare. And right now, as communities are trying to respond to COVID-19, we see it in stark relief that the, the lack of healthcare opportunity, the lack of healthcare access in the rural areas really puts those populations more at risk. The other thing that this has highlighted is the need to have uh, preventive care for every single American, every single Washingtonian. Uh, my family that lives in Finland they have universal health care there. They have a single-payer system. They are managing their chronic conditions, the comorbidities that make people more likely uh, to have complications from COVID-19, and their fatality rates are lower. So when we provide universal care so that everybody has treatment for heart disease and diabetes and these underlying conditions that complicate COVID-19, then it means we're more resilient. And we know, uh, for better or worse, that there are going to be other pandemics in our future. This is just uh, the way that the world is working. We're so interconnected. We've got to make ourselves as resilient as possible, and we have to make sure we're not just resilient in the cities that our rural communities have the same access. And when you've got a county that only has one healthcare provider and one insurance company uh, that won't contract with doctors, that won't let new providers come into the community, that's cutting off access. A universal single payer solves that. We'll have providers in every community. We'll have access everywhere. There won't be this division of where you live and where you don't live. I talked, Dr. Rushing said when she moved to her town, they were living in Portland, they moved out to the rural area. Her neighbors said the first thing she needed to do was buy life flight insurance. That is insurance for helicopters to transport you to a hospital when you need care. That's garbage. We should not live in a state where folks have to buy helicopter insurance. Every single person in our state should have health care. That will solve this crisis. With the short time that we have remaining, I want to get a, your take on a couple more things here. Uh, I know that a lot of people are hopeful that with an expanded Democratic majority, something can be done to address our upside-down tax structure in 2021. 
it's going to be a tall order. We are looking at an $8.8 billion budget deficit. Uh, but you have a detailed approach. So what do you think is going to be possible in 2021? Well, it's a multi-step process, but what we've got to do is begin to tax those at the very top. We've seen in this economy before COVID-19 that all the gains went to the very top. The millionaires, the billionaires, the big corporations, they're the ones that have been reaping the benefits, and they're paying very low rates of taxes. Your working family in Washington pays as much as 17 cents on the dollar to state and local taxes. Bill Gates is paying a penny or two. We've got to turn that right side up. So that means in the immediate term, some sort of high earner payroll tax, high earner income tax to make sure that those wealthiest few are contributing their fair share. It also means enacting a capital gains tax. We know uh, that the right wing and the Republicans will challenge that in court the moment uh, that we put it into law. So we need to have steps in place, including that payroll tax, to help us uh, survive while we wait for the lawsuits uh, to, to sort themselves out. We also have to look at our existing tax code and look at things like the estate tax, where the Trump administration and that horrible tax bill they passed cut the rates of the estate tax. I say, let's raise our thresholds and raise our rates and scoop that revenue back up. If the Trump administration doesn't want wealthy estates paying, that doesn't mean that we should be leaving that money on the table. We should be investing that in services here. Those are the first few steps I would take. We also need to really have a conversation in the long term around an income tax to provide uh, that stability and support to our tax code. That's a longer term conversation. It probably will require amending the Constitution because of some Supreme Court rulings we've had recently, but we've got to start that journey now. And that's why I'm excited. Representative Noel Frame, one of my colleagues in the House, has a group that's working statewide with input from Washingtonians all over the state around crafting a vision for what a balanced tax code would look like. We need to do that work now and be ready to implement it. Well, you're two of the younger members uh, in the legislature, and so you represent the future. You're going to have to be the ones to ultimately get it done. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on the climate. We got a couple audience questions about this. Sam and Lori in particular want to know what your views are on climate change. I know you support the Green New Deal. I will ask how your views contrast with those of your opponent. You know, uh, well, first of all, I think we all need to acknowledge that climate change poses an existential threat uh, to human civilization on this planet. It is uh, COVID-19 has taught us that we will ignore these uh, giant threats. They become uh, really devastating. Climate change is waiting right behind COVID-19 to have same, the same kind of effects on communities all over the world. We've got to take action on this. The biggest difference, uh, candidly, Stefan, is I'm the only candidate in this race that has taken the no fossil fuel money pledge. From the day I announced my campaign, we said we are not going to take uh, lobbyist, executive, PAC, uh, corporate money from fossil fuel interests, and we've kept to that. Uh, my opponent refuses to do that, candidly. Uh, and I think that that's a dividing line. You know, you got to put your proverbial money where your mouth is and show through your values how you're going to lead. Uh, I think at the state, you look at my record, I helped close our state's last coal-fired power plant. Um, and that didn't make me friends in that millionaire-billionaire community. I also led the effort to invest in Sound Transit 3, the state's largest expansion of mass transit in history. Those are the kinds of transformational changes we're going to need uh, to get through this crisis. As majority floor leader, I brought the 100% clean energy plan to the floor for a vote, helped get it to the governor's desk. So we've got to keep taking steps. The next step we've got to take is an economy-wide price on carbon, whether that's a cap and invest or a carbon tax. However that mechanism works, we need to create that economic incentive. And we have to pass a low carbon fuel standard, a clean fuel standard, so that we're reducing the carbon intensity of our uh, vehicle fleets as we continue moving forward. 
You know, I, I will just say, as you mentioned, you're running to be president of the Senate, and listeners know that we are working very hard to elect more progressives to the Senate. So having a progressive president of the Senate really will make a difference in all the areas that you're talking about in terms of the budget, climate, health care, and on and on. Before I let you go, I want to mention, uh, or have you talk about, rather, the historic nature of your run. If you were elected, you would be Washington's first openly gay statewide executive and the first gay lieutenant governor in all 50 states. Can you just talk about the impact of that? Yeah, you know, I think um, this election cycle is about breaking down barriers. It's why I'm so excited to be running on the most diverse ticket of legislators that have been running. It's why I'm so excited to be running alongside folks like Gail Tarleton and others. We've got to break down barriers and show that our progressive movement includes everybody. We've got to elect people like Twana Nobles. We don't have a single black senator in the Senate right now. We've got to be showing every community in Washington that they have a place at the table and they have a a role in, in crafting these solutions. Our LGBT community is vibrant, it's diverse, it's located all over Washington state. And I'm so excited to step up onto this statewide platform and show that our community is not only ready to lead, but ready to be part of the solutions and creating the bold transformation we need. And in the primary, we got just hundreds of messages from LGBT voters around the state. They got that voters pamphlet, they read it, they saw that we were gonna make history, uh, and we got all sorts of emails and love and support. This is about visibility, it's about representation, it's about giving young people who are growing up in our society that sense that they have a place at the table. It's about making sure that folks who've lived in this state and haven't felt welcome for decades know that they are now welcome, that our state is a place that accepts everybody. That's the transformational part of this race. I'm so excited to be helping lead the charge to bring the change we need. Well, we are hoping to be right uh, right at your side, helping you uh, create that change. I know there are a lot of motivated people listening right now, so let's talk to them. What sort of help do you need? Well, I will be honest. Last time I came on your uh, on your show, um, the next day my fundraising assistant said, "Hey, what did you do last night?" Because we raised about a thousand dollars right <laughs> in the evening. What were you doing? <laughs> and so I'm hoping that uh, your listeners tonight will ha- help us, uh, you know, maybe double that goal uh, and raise some money. We also are going to need, uh, candidly, a lot of help to keep reaching out to Washingtonians. We're going to have a strong team of organizers that are making phone calls, sending texts to voters. So if there's folks on the line that can help us uh, in a volunteer capacity, if there's folks that can give a dollar, five dollars, five hundred dollars, whatever it is, uh, that's what it's going to take to win. I have two millionaire opponents and I don't have that kind of cash. I need folks to have my back to be helping us deliver this message. And we know if we can raise turnout by progressive voters, we will elect Mike Pellicciotti and Chris Reichdahl and Gail Tarleton and me, as well as folks up and down the ticket, and we will bring the change that our state needs. What's your website before you go? MarcoForwa.com, M-A-R-K-O-F-O-R-W-A.com. Senator Marco Elias, it is always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mike Pellicciotti is state representative for the 30th Legislative District. He was a Fulbright Scholar in Economic Development, and he has worked as an economic crimes prosecutor. As an assistant attorney general, he has managed a state unit combating financial fraud here in the state, and he is running for state treasurer, and it is always great to see him. Representative Pellicciotti, hello. It's great. It's great to see you again, Stefan. It's great to see so many friends uh, on this call as well. It's great to see people from all around the state. 
Well, we've definitely got that here tonight, and we are here on a singular mission, which is to get you and your fellow candidates up and across the finish line in November. So I'm going to, I've been asking everybody tonight for their job description. I'm going to read yours, and you, you tell me how I do. You can grade me. So the state treasurer is responsible for managing the state's cash assets and allocating investments. He or she is also responsible for servicing the state's debt through the issuance of state bonds. And as part of the Washington State Investment Board, the treasurer helps oversee the investment of state pension and retirement funds. So how'd I do? That was great. Yeah, no, that's, that's, you got, you got most of it. And, and, and really the focus, you know, is these things affect people's everyday lives, right? The job of the treasurer, you mentioned the state investment board, for example, um, oversees whether or not people's retirements are there when they retire. It, it manages our state investments. It figures out a hundred billion dollars of what we're investing in and, uh, you know, protects things like the, the GET program, the guaranteed education tuition program. So when folks invest in their kids' uh, tuition, uh, that the kids or grandkids' uh, tuition dollars, that that investment is being protected. Um, and a range of other small business grants or economic development committees, and, and make sure that we have affordable housing. We can finance uh, affordable housing in our state, especially for seniors in continuous care. Well, the way that we spend our money and in, indeed the way that we invest our money speaks to our values. And I want to drill down on that with you in just a moment. But I want to start with the August primary because I will uh, say to people who may not know, you came out ahead of the incumbent with over 53 percent of the vote, which is just tremendous. What do you feel made the difference there? Well, for starters, I don't support from so many people who are on this call, and obviously we were really thrilled with the result. Um, yeah, we won by six and a half points. It's actually I, at least what I've been able to find the first time a sitting incumbent uh, in a partisan race like this has uh, lost a head-to-head primary. Um, so we are really excited about what this this says, but we have a long way to go. I think a big part of it is, you know, as I talked about the last time I was on this call, um, being a one of the only state elected officials who's never taken any corporate donations uh, in a position where it is uh, critical, and there is no position in state government where it's more important not to have those corporate campaign donation entanglements uh, than the position of state treasurer. And, you know, I think also as we go in, in as we deal with the economic crisis we're in, um, we have a current uh, incumbent uh, who is just not showing up for the job uh, at a time when we need all hands on deck. Uh, he's just not doing what he needs to do. And, you know, it's just not in line with the values of our state and what also is not in line with the values of our state is the fact that he supports Donald Trump for president. He reiterated that just the other day, uh, that not only has he voted for Donald Trump, but he supports Donald Trump again uh, in this election. And uh, it's time for change. And I think the people of Washington uh, realize that. Corporate entanglements, uh, not showing up for the job, supports Trump. Um, put a pin in all those. Let's let's go through those one by one. So this actually is part of a quote that you gave after the primary. You said, quote, the people of Washington are ready to get corporate campaign entanglements out of the treasurer's office to bring transparency, hands-on management, and advocacy for working and middle-class families in this difficult economic time. So... When you say uh, your opponent's corporate entanglements are uh, negatively impacting the people of Washington, can you be more specific? How do you mean? Sure. Well, let's just look at last month. I mean, he took uh, a check from the same tobacco company that he has invested tens of millions of your tax dollars in, tens of millions of your tax dollars. And he accepted a check from that same company, the same company who had given him a contribution right before his term as president. I'm sorry, as treasurer. And I think that, um, you know, I can use that example, the, the fact he's taken money from uh, various banks that he regulates um, and that uh, he also invests your uh, money in. It, it's the, the type of thing where, 
anyone objectively stepping back would say, well, that doesn't make sense. Can he even do that? And, and the answer is, well, not if the people of the state of Washington say no through the ballot box. And that's why I think these issues are important. It's important to get those corporate campaign donation entanglements out of that office, not just because of the appearance of those issues, um, but also because, um, you know, one of the things the treasurer, especially in a state like Washington, should be doing more of is doing what's called shareholder engagement, which means connecting and making sure that companies that we own stock in are actually following their own internal policies. So on issues like climate change, on issues like gender diversity on corporate boards, on issues like diver general ethnic and other forms of and racial diversity on corporate boards, making sure we're holding their feet to the fire and following their own internal policies. And you know, it, it shouldn't shock anyone that the current state treasurer just hasn't been leading in the way we would expect the state of Washington to be leading on these issues. And um, it's exactly consistent with our obligation to be minimizing the risk to our long-term investments that the uh, treasurer through the treasurer's role in the state investment board is really uh, making sure those things are, are taking place. So I, I, there is no doubt that getting corporate campaign donation entanglements out of the position of state treasurer is critical. Uh, and it's something that, that I think uh, is going to make a big difference when I'm serving the state treasurer instead. Absolutely. I mean, it loops right back to what we were talking about in terms of investments being a reflection of our values. You also mentioned that the current treasurer has not been transparent. Uh, how will you work to bring more transparency to the job? Well, I think, you know, it doesn't come as a surprise to a lot of people who, who are part of our conversation today that, that they have no idea how our investments, what our investments are all about. The fact that the the state of Washington and, and the treasurer in particular has a hand in investing over $100 billion of your money, um, the people of the state of Washington should know what the state is doing on their behalf. Um, and, you know, when I bring up the example related to the fact that the treasurer is supporting investment in the same uh, tobacco companies that he's taking money in, well, well, that's the type of thing that the public should have awareness of. And um, the fact that, that it, it kind of almost shocks the conscience, but yet the fact you don't know about that tells you there isn't the transparency there needs to be. And when you're dealing with finances, it's that much more important. It's why in the legislature, I led the passage of laws to get dark money out of Washington state politics, uh, led the passage of laws, introduced uh, laws that were passed and signed by the governor to get uh, more political action committee transparency. Because when you have this financial transparency, it makes a difference related to policies in general. And we saw this related to an election. We are just hearing Senator Leas talk about a good candidate that, that we have in the 28th legislative district. Well, there was a uh, a political mailer put out that, in my opinion, was a racially charged political mailer uh, against that candidate in the 28th legislative district. Um, and because of the bills that I wrote and passed into law, for the first time, it actually identified who the top donors were to that political ad for the first time. And guess what happened? People got that mailer and said, why are these groups funding this inappropriate ad? And what happened? Those groups that were funding it had to backpedal. They started implementing new policies in the way that they were investing in campaigns and who they, how they were investing. It changes policies when people know how finances are working and where and how that money's moving. And that's something I'm really excited to do. It's the reason the legislature, I was the first legislator to step forward and uh, voluntarily provide my public records while calling on the legislature to do the same. Um, and now we have more transparency in the legislature as a result as well. And, and all of those things lead to good government. We need that now more than ever. 
And uh, it's something that I think is particularly uh, important when it comes to state treasurer's race. Transparency, you're talking about transparency. You're also talking about accountability for unethical behavior, which is in short supply these days, I'm afraid. So that would certainly be a breath of fresh air. I want to talk a little bit about the budget shortfall that we are, are facing here in the states. We are looking at an $8.8 billion shortfall over the next three years. How would you help address this as treasurer? Well, one of the things I'm going to do is I'm actually going to do what our bond rating agencies advise. And that's I think it's been one of the challenges that's that's been uh, been the case in the last few years is that the legislature really doesn't listen to the current state treasurer. And, and on these issues... Um, the state treasurer is only as effective and only has as much power as the legislature listens to the state treasurer. And, you know, as someone who has served on fiscal committee, current fiscal committees, who currently serves on the capital budget committee and obviously has served and navigated uh, legislation uh, to the governor's desk, you know, I, I have a better understanding of how that works. And, you know, we have a current state treasurer right now who um, has hired a contract lobbyist to interact with the legislature. Um, well, that's just not going to get the job done. You know, the, the, your state treasurer should be able uh, to interact and navigate these issues with the legislature. It's something that that I obviously as a current legislator, I'm doing. I'm already being uh, included in, in certain discussions related to the budget. And I think that that's something that's going to be very important as we go forward to make sure that we're actually doing what the bond rating agencies advise and, and considering all aspects of that, not just the, the partisan interests, that the current treasurer has to be articulating related to his desire, uh, you know, to to have nothing but budget cuts and, and ultimately lead to austerity in our state. That in a way that I think is inconsistent with uh, the expectations, certainly of both our bond rating agencies uh, and I think the people of the state of Washington. You know, I, I do think that it's just worth reemphasizing here that you are the one with these relationships with the legislature from your work on financial committees. It's important, right? Yeah, I, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, I, I really do think that you need to be able to, um, you know, frankly, have the ear of the state legislature. Um, I, I don't think there that that many people would would disagree with the notion that the, you know the, the state treasurer, when the state treasurer says something, um, that the legislature should listen. And it's something that I'm going to do. I'm, look, I'm going to be an independent treasurer. I'm going to be somebody who makes sure that we're always watching out for the the financial uh, interests of the, the people of the state of Washington. Um, but but at the same time, um, I, I when I say something, it's going to be very important that the legislature listens to to the to me. And and I think that right now we have it set up where, you know, frankly, a lot of my colleagues, if not the majority of my colleagues, uh, don't even know who our state treasurer is, let alone have any interest with what the state treasurer has to say. And you know, the fact that he's a Trump supporting state treasurer doesn't really help in, in his credibility in, in really representing the, the people of St. Washington. You've mentioned that he's the only statewide elected official in the West Coast who supports Donald Trump for president. I'm wondering, just on a gut level, what do you make of that? And, and how do you see this race as reflective of what's happening at the national level? Well, look, I mean, in, in every way, I mean, obviously, this the old saying, Tip O'Neill, all politics is local. But I, I do think that... Um, we're seeing the impact even just related to our state budget based on uh, the the mistakes that the federal government is making uh, on a regular basis. And, uh, you know, when we, we don't have, um, uh, you know, elected officials or, or even our state treasurer uh, acknowledging um, what, what a harm that has in our, our economy, I, I really think that's a problem. I mean, even just this past weekend, you know, he was at a Republican event um, where, you know, people were wearing the MAGA hats, the Trump banners were waving. It was a, uh, you know, par partially indoor event where 
you know, I, I didn't see anyone uh, on the images I saw wearing masks. Um, and, you know, he's speaking to Rowling Mop and he's the only statewide elected official there. Well, that has an effect. That has an effect. When a statewide elected official is showing up to that type of rally and encouraging behavior that we know just from a study that The Economist did just a week or so ago, that when, when people wear masks, every person who wears a mask increases over $50 to the gross domestic product of the, state, of the United States. We know that's good for the economy, and, and he's out there doing the opposite. And so I, I just really think that um, everything obviously is interrelated, uh, but, but my focus at this point is doing the job. In fact, he's not doing his job as state treasurer, not showing up, and he's skipping the necessary meetings to be doing the job um, is particularly uh, problematic, and it's my, my focus on changing right now. I was hoping you were going to get back to that. You say that he's only attended half of his required board and commission meetings? That's right. And, you know, I was talking earlier about the state investment board uh, meetings in particular, which, again, is this fundamental uh, part of the job. Uh, the legislature uh, has has made it very critical that the, that the uh, state treasurer uh, be there at, at those at those uh, position at, at the state investment board meetings, because these things affect the maintaining people's pensions, making sure when people retire that their money is there. Uh, makes a decision related to a, over $100 billion of state investments. Uh, and he's only attended three of the last 20 state investment board meetings. He's only personally attended three of the last 20 state investment board meetings. Uh, it it, it, it kind of, it, 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 it's shocking. And what's even more concerning is what he was doing and how he, what he was prioritizing instead. Um, you, you know, at the June meeting, when the June meeting was addressing a $6 billion shortfall and decrease in our pension dollars in the first quarter returns, um, at the same time that he was supposed to be at that meeting, he was instead hosting and holding a fundraiser with bank lobbyists at the same time during the workday. He accepted a maximum contribution from the bank lobbyists at that meeting instead of being at that state investment board meeting to address the pension dollars of the people of the state of Washington. It is not right. It is fundamentally a problem. And it gives you an indication of what's going on here. I mean, at the next meeting, the July meeting, I attended that meeting. It was incredibly insightful. We had the best and brightest minds at that meeting talking about what we needed to be doing as a part of the recovery, the economic recovery of the state of Washington. Not only was he not there, there was nothing else on his calendar. Nothing. I mean, these, these, we need all hands on deck. We are in an economic crisis. We need to make sure we're doing all we can to best represent the people of the state of Washington in terms of getting us out of it and making sure we're protecting working families and retired folks at all times in the financial decisions we make. Well, I think we need you in the job of state treasurer. You've made that very clear. So what can we do for you? Uh, let, let us know what you need for your campaign. Well, how, how do we get you uh, so that you maintain your lead uh, in, in November and get you across the finish line and into the, into the chair? Well, th- well, first of all, uh, you know, so many of you have been such great supporters already. You know, I recognize so many names uh, here because of the support that, that you provided uh, our campaign. But, you know, one of the things, again, I'm proud of is, you know, we're running a statewide race with no corporate donations. Um, and we already have more individual contributions than any state treasurer campaign in the history of our state. Um, and, you know, and that's what's really exciting. I mean, we, we have over uh, 2,000 individual contributions uh, at this point. Uh, the incumbent uh, has uh, uh, less than a third of that amount, and he's been an incumbent for four years. Um, and I think it gives you some some idea of where those priorities are. You know, I'm out trying to connect with people through opportunities like this. He's holding banking fundraisers with bank lobbyists when he's supposed to be doing his job with the state investment board. 
Um, but, but we can only do that by the continued support of so many of you. So truly, I can't tell you how much I appreciate those $5, $10, $15, $25 donations. Uh, because so many people are coming uh, as a part of this, this uh, campaign, we're, we're really, uh, we're getting there and we're running a statewide campaign. And I, and I think we're going to be successful in November if we keep doing what we need to need to do to get across the finish line. So I'll put my contact information here. And obviously, any any uh, donations would, would be really appreciated, would, would make a, a big difference as we go forward. And I always do a plug to get involved with the state party's coordinated campaign. That always helps when people are making phone calls to get the word out. Uh, and, you, you know, it's one of the things I was talking to Kat about. Uh, earlier was, you know, a lot of these down-ballot races, uh, people don't vote. I always like to point out the state treasurer race four years ago, even though there were two Republicans on the ballot, that's how we got a Trump-supporting Republican, by the way, with two Republicans on the ballot, um, that in that race, 650,000 fewer people voted for state treasurer than voted for governor. And that's more people than, the, than many states in our union, or at least some states in our union. And so it's important that everyone votes, get involved in the coordinate campaign. And obviously, I'll put my link in here for anyone who wants to help support uh, our campaign in particular. And for the podcast and for radio, can you uh, give it to us verbally, please? Sure. It's electmikep, as in mikepelliciotti.com. And uh, it's the same way to connect with me on Facebook is uh, at electmikep. Mike Pellicetti, Representative Pellicetti, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. It has been great talking with you. Uh, I'm feeling charged up. I I hope you are too. I am. It's always such a pleasure. So good to see all of you. Thanks for all that you're doing. My thanks again to Superintendent Chris Rakedahl, Representative Gail Tarleton, Senator Marco Leas, and Representative Mike Pellicciotti. Thanks also to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Anjievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Thanks this week to Catherine Fysears, Special thanks to Lori Colwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.